0: If you really want to improve as a leader, I've got a great deal for you. Simply go to mojouniversity.com and sign up for our two-week trial. Take any of my courses. I promise you, you're going to get better. You're going to learn. Go to mojouniversity.com and sign up totally for free and try us out for two weeks. Oh, I feel
1: good. I knew that.
0: Welcome, everyone, to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here, and I'm thrilled to introduce my special guest today. My special guest is Mr. Richard Sheridan. He's the author of Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. Now, uh, Richard is CEO, co-founder, and chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations, uh, which is one when work, works uh award for 11 straight years and has 5 revenue recognitions from Inc magazine. Wow. Menlo and Rich have been featured on the cover of Inc, Entrepreneur, Forbes and New York magazines and he frequently speaks around the world at business conferences and to major corporations such as Mass Mutual, Adobe, Nike and Intel. Uh Rich currently lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome Rich to the Manager Mojo show. Thanks
1: Steve, great to be here.
0: Well, looking forward to having our chat today, Rich, and look uh, especially looking forward to talking about your book. Uh, but before we do, why don't you share with our listeners, what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work?
1: Well, Steve, I'm an engineer at heart. Uh, I love to build things. And you know, the thing I love to build at work is teams and teams to build software, but sometimes that can feel a little theoretical. So, uh, good old-fashioned home building projects, you know, projects around the house are satisfying to me. Uh, I'm uh, delightfully, one of my daughters lives just a half a mile east of uh, my wife and I, and um, she's got a fairly new house, and we are working on a project in her house, which delights her to no end, that uh, my creative outlet happens to be working on projects around the house and she's got me gainfully employed doing that when i'm not at work
0: (laughs) that's awesome rich uh and congratulations on doing that for your daughter that's a great gift to give to anyone uh rich i'm looking forward to talking about chief joy officer and i want to tell my listeners right now that if you think this book is some touchy-feely okay get in touch with myself type book again uh, you're going to be totally mistaken. This is a fascinating book. And, Rich, I would also say it's actually two books. Uh, the first is really uh, learning how about to lead yourself, I think, uh, would be one way to put it. And the other part is how to go about doing this in your company. So uh, the book itself fascinating. I encourage each of you to go get your copy of Chief Joy Officer. You're going to learn an awful lot about it. But Rich, uh, one of the things that strikes me in this uh, that is most odd, and I'd like for you to talk about it, is that your background is uh, programming, engineering, uh, doing that technology stuff. And uh, yet you wrote a book about joy. So share with our listeners a little bit about your story and how in the world you kind of got off into this thing, joy? I don't think most of us think of joy when we think of dealing with programmers and engineers.
1: Absolutely, and you know, and it's I I probably have made a life mission of uh, changing not only the minds of the people in the world about engineers, but also reminding engineers their heart for why they chose the profession they did. Because ultimately, I think every organization should be able to answer two questions really clearly. Who do you serve? And what would delight look like for them? And if we think of the heart. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I think a lot of us uh, forget why we chose the profession we did, and we start chasing paychecks and stock options and that sort of thing. And yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, we probably chose our profession because of some concept of joy in our hearts. And so let me channel the joy of a programmer, uh, which, you know, probably a lot of people are like, really, there's joy in the hearts of programmers? And there, and there really is. There is one thing and one thing you alone. You have to there. prove
0: that, though, Rich. I'm not so sure. Well, <laughs> okay. I, I
1: think, I, I'm guessing I will get to the matter quick enough and, and clearly enough that people will believe me.
0: Okay, go for it.
1: it is, there is only one thing that thrills the heart of an engineer, and that is to see their work get out into the world and delight people that you know that what an engineer wants more than anything else software or otherwise is to have someone stop them on the sidewalk and say wait a minute you worked on that didn't you i love that product i use it every day in my life thank you you made my life better because of what you did now the trouble is most engineers are denied that experience over the course of their career because They're missing budgets, blowing deadlines, delivering crappy quality, uh, uh, serving up software that nobody can use, so they have unhappy users, and then we have to write dummies books for those poor people. And Mm -hmm. so you never get a chance to experience it. But deep down, every one of us who ever got into this profession wants to create something for people who don't know what we know but will be amazed at what we created because it's so... Clever and interesting and solves real problems in ways that nobody would have thought of before. And that's really the heart of joy. And I will tell you the reason I'm the guy talking to you and writing books like this is I was denied that joy for, for most of the early part of my career.
0: How were you denied it? I'm, I, I think that's, I, I know myself, I've looked at the book but, and read about it in the book, but you know, really get at the core. What, what do you mean when you said you were denied joy early in your career? I bet it's so, going to sound familiar to most of us.
1: Oh yeah, I bet it is too. You know, and, and I think it, it'll sound almost um, so it will sound both familiar and surprising. Because I believe most people have gotten so used to the problem I'm about to describe, it just feels normal. But I'm going to do sort of that equivalent of uh, the red pill and the blue pill in the matrix, where I'm not going to change anything, I'm just going to reveal the truth of a very ugly industry. When I graduated from the University of Michigan with a couple of degrees in computer science, computer engineering, I had already been programming in one way, shape, form, or another for about 11 years. I started when I was just a kid in high school. Um, And I thought, wow, the the world's my oyster. I'm really good at this. Uh, The world needs what I'm capable of doing. I I can't wait to get out into the work world and, and deliver some really amazing stuff. And very quickly, I hit a trough of disillusionment because there were people yelling at each other in meetings. There were uh, deadlines missed and budgets blown. And then, you know, there was this inordinate pressure just to ship something regardless of quality. So there ended up being uh, 24-7 style kind of software team death marches and uh, And then you finally delivered the thing that uh, you were you know, kind of forced to push out in the marketplace, and then the quality problems started rolling in and then the users say, "Well, this isn't what we need." and the marketing people say, "Well this isn't what we asked for," and the sales people say "I can't sell this and then you go back. You know, and you try and like double down your efforts to make everything better again. But you had so many of these other problems washing up in your shore that you just never got to produce the thing that you believed you could delight the world with when you began, when it was just a blank sheet of paper. And so that was happening to me over and over and over again. And quite frankly, I thought it was just me at first. Because I was so sort of insulated from what was going on in the rest of the world. But when I started sort of asking my peers around town, started surveying the industry and reading articles and books about what was going on in the software industry, I realized, wait a minute, this is everywhere. I mean, it's not like it's universal, like there's no good stuff going on, but it's so rare as to be
0: unusual.
1: And that's when I realized, oh, there's, there's a big opportunity inside of all.
0: So true. And I I think uh, it's interesting to me that through all of your research, uh, you went to uh, joy, which I I happened to really, uh, I like the word, I like the context of joy. And I think people confuse it a lot of times with happiness and that, that causes a problem because they think, oh, well, you know, to think you're going to be happy all day, every day is, uh, you know, not going to happen and we all know that that's not true uh but i want to for my listeners I, I there was a particular passage in your book that i, I really liked and i just want to uh, read a, uh, just one line i think it really helps us to understand this concept of joy and you stated and i quote seeking joy by itself won't work you need to tie joy to values to seed joy in guiding principles behaviors and actions and then you go about talking about leaders, and you had a phenomenal a- analogy. You called leaders that and said that they were like pilots. Now, if you yep. don't mind, I want you, I want you to share what What did you mean by leaders are like pilots? If we're gonna go discover joy.
1: Yeah, and and let me connect it to your world. I think. Joy may very well be the battery pack inside of everyone's mojo. How's that for connecting to your audience?
0: I like it a lot Um, because I think it's 100 (laughs) percent true.
1: (laughs) Yep. And so um, so let's talk first before we talk about pilots, let's talk just a little bit about airplanes, because I think the airplane uh, analogy is actually really important in the role pilots play in guiding an aircraft. Um, I am a pilot, so there's a little bit of, uh, you know, aeronautical engineering uh, uh, words in my head, but if we think about an aircraft, the only way an aircraft gets off the ground is if there's more lift than weight and more thrust than drag, right? If, yep. if you got too much weight, if you don't have enough thrust, if you don't have enough power, uh, you're not going to get off the ground at, no matter how hard you try. But if we've crafted our aircraft properly which i would declare is how we organize and design our systems and the values that produce it we get lift we get the lift of human energy that exceeds the weight of bureaucracy we get the thrust of purpose that exceeds the drag of fear and once we have our system tuned properly the work of the pilot is actually lessened we equate leaders to pilots if you think about the next time you're in an aircraft, just imagine you're rolling down the runway, it's building up airspeed, everything's working, the plane is properly designed, is properly loaded, it's properly fueled and properly managed, everything is working just right. And at a certain point in that runway roll, the leader, all they have to do, the pilot, pulls back on that yoke just a little bit, creating what in aeronautical terms, and you're going to love this one, Steve, creates what's called a positive attitude. And as soon as that positive attitude is created, that plane just lifts off the ground with almost no effort at all. So once we understand the relevant principles of flight, our planes can fly to heights and distances that are previously unimaginable. You know, Orville Wright believed we wouldn't ever be able to build a plane that carried more than two people. i read that story on a 747 to London. Uh, so, <laughs> Just imagine the irony there yeah. um but but same thing i think you in what you're the speakers you bring in the, the interviews you do the, the authors you are uh, bringing to your audience i'm guessing that you are talking with people who are at the vanguard of discovering what are the relevant principles that cause our human organizations to fly? And what role do leaders play in that? And as I said, leaders who are pilots, who are having to manage every silly little thing going on, and they're continually distracted, well, you'll probably get there safely, but you may not get there very efficiently. You may not get to exactly where you're going. Uh, The crew and passengers will probably uh, stay alive, but they're not going to thrive. And so I think the, the leader as uh, the pilot, leader as pilot of that organizational aircraft is, uh, to me, works because I, I understand what it takes to fly a, a little airplane, at least.
0: Well, uh, Rich, I, I have to tell you and I tell my listeners as well, I also uh, am a licensed pilot. And I guess that's one reason why I connected with it. But the, the reality is there were two truths here that I think we, we want to talk about. Uh, number one is that when you pull back on the yoke of an aircraft and you create the positive attitude. Uh, so many leaders really are not positive leaders. Uh, they, they, they lead uh, by many techniques that just plain and simply are proven never to work. Uh, and But the biggest thing is not just the positive attitude, but you talked about fear, and you address fear beautifully uh in uh, chief joy officer because i i think so many times in the, the way i'm interpreting what you wrote in your book is that you talked about all of the rules we make and yep. uh, the, all of these rules are based in that thing called fear and uh, yep. tell us a little bit about your experience and in particular how it affects people that are technology oriented because I think so many of us now have departments that are doing programming work or that they have engineering aspects of their businesses. Uh, we have a ton of le- uh, listeners here that are in those markets. And this, this fear-based leadership is, is so misguided. But tell us a little bit about your experience and how it affects technology companies in particular.
1: Yeah, and I think you you probably are with me. It affects every kind of company out there. It just happens to be that it probably affects technology companies even more, is that uh, when you run into a fear-based organization, the leaders might as well walk in every day and yell at everyone saying, I don't trust you. You are going to make a bad decision. You are going to make a bad choice. You are going to come in late you're going to leave early you're going to there's there's something that i don't trust you so i'm going to start building this bureaucracy around you that basically will make decisions for you because you are incapable of making them yourself and um and no human lives in that environment well um and uh you know and here's here's the thing i mean here's here's like the the nub of it all steve is that um there is only one thing we need from our teams or a set of things, and that is creativity, energy, imagination, invention, innovation. Uh, I bet we could sum all those up in a, into a mojo package as well. Yep, that's what absolutely. We want from our human, That's what we want from our human teams. And if we pump fear into the room, and there's so many ways we can do this, and I bet your listeners have felt most of them. I'll, I'll use a few examples in a second here. But as soon as we pump fear into the room, artificial fear, I'm talking about the fear that's, that's made up in order to motivate, right, For the roll of an eye at a meeting, uh, the sighing of a leader at a meeting, um, you know, just the meetings themselves and how they're organized and how we make sure that I'm the one making all the decisions and you just listen to me and do what you're told. Uh, As soon as we do that, we drop just a little bit of adrenaline and cortisol in the people who work for us, and we shut down the most human parts of their brain, right? We we get them into reptile mode, and now there's no creativity, no energy, no imagination, no invention. You're not going to get any of that, and yet that's the thing we need the most from our teams, so we have to focus on how do we pump fear out of the room? And, yeah. and one of the posters we have in the high wall up here at Menlo's, and this is the fallacy of, of leading with fear. Fear doesn't make badness go away. It makes it go into hiding. Now mm-hmm. you can't manage it anymore. And now everything will look perfect for a while until it suddenly doesn't. And then all the wheels come off. And now we're in chaos mode. And a lot of people are really... They almost think chaos is a good alternative to bureaucracy but it's just the opposite side of bureaucracy i
0: I totally agree and and uh bureaucracy is bad in all forms and uh listeners when you read uh richard's book you're gonna find he really talks uh a, a tremendous amount about what leadership is not and i encourage you to go look at those things uh because the way he actually says what it's not and then what it does look like, I think is going to help you examine your own leadership style, where you are individually today. And it's going to help you understand a little bit about this idea of how can I actually inject uh, what Richard calls later in the book, optimism in his uh, leadership capacity. So with that, Rich, I'd I'd like for you to talk about uh, this leader that now is he he's He's gotten away from this fear based and he's started to use optimism tell us what optimism is in your mind and how that can be powerful to our people
1: yeah yeah you know, i think I think a lot of times people hear optimism and they think you know rainbows and unicorns and um uh and you know fluffy stuff like you said in the opening lines yeah and I think the the hard part is, and this is the part I think that surprises a lot of people, is, A, number one, no surprise, optimism is in fact a choice. But it's a harder choice. And and that, I think, surprises people. Because pessimism is easy. We can paint dark pictures every single day of the week we want. Choosing the optimistic view uh, is... it it elevates the human energy of our team that will give us more, more human lift, but they will look to their leader. They want to make sure you're not kidding. You're not just BSing them with something, but they're looking to that. And, and then they, they want to know where it comes from. And I think optimism in, uh, in, in a leader comes kind of from two different places. One is, um, that, uh, Things, you, you know things may not turn out the way you expect. That's, that's part of it. But, but the other part is that um, you believe in the possibilities that exist because you've crafted a good team. So if things don't go as well as you expect, you've put the team in place to, to get back on a corrected course of action. And so you, you first have to believe in the outcome you're choosing, but you also have to believe if it doesn't turn out the way you expect, there's still time and energy and a team behind you that can help, uh, help you when things don't go the way you expect.
0: Rich, I think that's uh, very important. And, and I think we all want and know that we should be optimistic. And from, from my view and dealing with uh, leadership for many years, One of the things that that I think people struggle with, they they know instinctively that bureaucracy is, it chokes out creativity and it does all the wrong things. So what they'll do is they'll try to go to what I would call an optimism extreme. That's not really optimism, but it's just fluff. It's just, okay, well, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it no matter what the obstacles are. But then they overlook in the middle of this, which you point out beautifully, I believe in your book, you talk about uh, using systems. And yes. people really don't understand, in, in my view today, especially in a technology-based world that we live in, uh, they don't understand the value of systems and how that contributes to this idea of joy. Uh, I'm very interested in your perspective about how systems uh, can contribute, and I want you to give us an example, if you will.
1: Yeah, let's, let's go back to the airplane just for a second. And think about one interesting design element of aircraft, and that is the dihedral angle of the wings relative to the fuselage, where the wings are tipped up just a little bit. If anybody of your listeners is going to get on an airplane, just look at those wings. You'll find out they're not perfectly straight out from the fuselage. They're tipped up just a little bit. And that discovery led to what's called positive stability. And what that means is when that aircraft gets perturbed, it is naturally designed without any intervention from the pilot to go back to straight and level flight. And that is a great analogy for the systems we should put inside of our companies that we need to choose systems that get us back on the straight and level flight with our companies back in the direction we're heading without undue interaction from our leaders if the systems themselves are set up to correct most of the small things that go wrong, the work of leadership lessens. Now we can actually pay attention to the big things, the important things, where our expertise and our training and our our wisdom and knowledge and experience can all be brought to bear. But if we're spending our entire lives micromanaging all the little pieces, Number one, everybody around us is gonna be afraid because they see us frantically trying to keep up with every little thing that's going wrong. But now we can't concentrate on the big things. And so in our world, some examples of this are our visual management systems. Uh, We put all of our, we're kind of a weird software company, we're we're an in-person company, we put all of our project management artifacts on the wall, paper-based project management artifacts on the wall. and they're organized in such a way to radiate information so we know when we're ahead or we're behind. And everybody knows it. It isn't just the top dog leaders or the project managers staring at their uh, Gantt chart or something like that. Who knows who we're behind? Everybody on the team knows, especially the people actually doing the work. And when we create a system like that, it self-corrects most of the time, except when it doesn't. And that's when leadership can step in and say, hey, guys, what's going on here? Can I help? But if the system itself is correcting itself regularly,
0: leadership is only needed when it's actually needed. And therefore you've created a joyful working environment, not one that's built on fear, but one that's based on information, systems and actual leaders that care about getting the real results that are needed. Uh, rich, uh, y- the book itself, I, I, I can't say how much I do recommend it because I truly do. It's just awesome. Uh, it, 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 it's an insightful work, and I encourage our listeners to go out and get a copy. Uh, as we come to a close today, I know that people are going to want to know how to connect with you. Uh, would you mind sharing how best to connect with you and your work? Yep. If you, if you
1: just want to follow me on social media, you'll find me at Menlo Prez on Twitter and LinkedIn. M E N L O P R E Z. And uh, you can write me, uh, email Sheridan at menloinnovations.com. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, menloinnovations.com. You can come and visit. We host between three and 4,000 visitors a year from all over the world who just come to see what we've created. And maybe uh, I'll offer up the following perspective why the book may be more valuable. Uh, to your listeners than, than at first blush. What you're going to look into is some lessons from a real business. This is a this is a living, breathing example. It's actually still in operation. You can come see it so you can compare notes from what you read to uh, Uh, to what you see when you come but this is a living breathing example we we certainly don't believe we found the one true way to organize a team or a business or anything like that but we are a living breathing example that you can come visit and that's what I wanted to share with uh, with readers uh, when I wrote the book is uh, some real life examples of what worked for us and what has worked for others
0: that's awesome, Rich. And uh, it, here at Manager Mojo, we we never close a, uh, an interview without asking for a couple of uh, recommended top two action items that you recommend to our listeners today. What would be those two action items that you recommend? So
1: the first one for me is, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll put it broadly, then I'll put it specifically. If If you're spending too much time in meetings, which most people are, trade meetings for taking action. And the way we describe taking action here at Menlo is run the experiment. And that is our simple sort of exhortation to the world is spend less time contemplating and more time trying things, simple things, small things, inexpensive things, uh, uh, not take big risks and jump off a cliff but simply run small experiments. So if you heard something in this uh, podcast, if you read something in my book or others, if you learn something from a colleague and you go to work the next day and you're like, I have this great idea, and somebody looks in the eye and says, oh, that won't work here, that's not us, Uh, that won't be allowed, that's against policy, look them back in the eye and say, yeah, I get that, but let's try it. Let's run the experiment and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, awesome, we learn something. But if it does, imagine the possibilities.
0: That's awesome, Uh, that's a a great thing. Less time meeting, more time acting. I I think we all could do that. Uh, Rich, thank you so much uh, for your wisdom today. Uh, I've learned a lot and I know our listeners have learned a lot. Uh, My guest today has been Rich Sheridan. Uh, He's the author of Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. Uh, Rich, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the success uh, of Menlo Innovations. And thank you for the invitation that we all visit there. Uh, And we just uh, wish you continued success here at Manager Mojo. And thank you again for taking the time today. Thank you, Steve.